I'm Jake Thompson, and this is the Better Than Yesterday podcast. What's up? Welcome back to another week, another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. My name is Jake Thompson. I'm the Chief Encouragement Officer at Compete Every Day and your host here at the show. This week is a fun one as we get to welcome in Dr. Rob Carmen uh, to the show. Dr. Rob and I were connected from actually a past guest, Wayne McCullough, uh, and just had a chance to sit down and talk about his journey and the importance of storytelling. The stories that not only we tell others with the words that we use, but with the lives that we live. And the importance of being intentional with those stories and the stories that we share uh, both with our words and with our lives and, and what they can do and the impact they can make. Dr. Rob has traveled the world. He's trained over 50,000 national leaders and has spoken in person to over 1 million people. He's got two different doctorate degrees and has served for several years as both the Executive International Director at Christ for the Nations in Dallas, Texas, as well as their Institute Missions Director. Dr. Rob has planted and grown churches all over the world, but what I found most fascinating about this story is what he learned in the process of traveling, what he learned in regards to telling stories and the impact they make. And so today you're in for a treat. Without further ado, let me welcome to the show, Dr. Rob Carmen. All right, Doctor, Doctor Rob Carmen. If you want to go that route, yeah, you can. I mean, I don't know. A lot of people, once they have that doctorate, it's a standard. Well, with me, it's not. Okay, it just helps in certain countries. (laughs) Out of all the, how many countries have you been to? Seventy. Wow, most memorable country you visited? Uh, That you know, I get asked that question a lot. Jake, and uh, it's just hard to say. We we always we have a standard answer. So why you always say is the last one we went to, just so we don't aggravate anybody. <laughs> that is a very safe political answer. Uh, before we dive in, uh, how about give us a brief overview of your history, how you got to this point in Dallas, Texas, and and kind of your path. Well, we pastored. My wife and I uh, were the founders of a church in Albuquerque, in New Mexico. And that was uh, back in 1980. We started out with 35 people. We had 34 women and one man. My standard response to uh, to any audience is, what can you do with 34 women and one man? <laughs> I do that purposely, and I drop my voice down a few notches just to get all the women aggravated. And then I come back with, you can change the world. And they get excited. But anyhow, we started like that. It grew very rapidly. became one of the largest uh, Churches in the state got up to about 5,000 people in a very, very short time. And, you know, back in probably the latter 80s, the early 90s, we started traveling a lot. Saw tremendous opportunities at initially in developing nations where we began to train leaders and so on and so forth. And that really overtook what we were doing on home base. So back uh, the early 2000, 2002, we transitioned out of the church, turned it over to... Uh, to another guy and uh, ended up in Dallas. We ended up in Dallas primarily because I was, I had a lot of relationships here, number one. Number two, 
you got a great, you know, it's a great airport, so I can get anywhere in the world because <laughs> yeah. because uh, you always have to come through Dallas usually to get anywhere. Number three, at that time we were the I was the executive international director of Christ for the Nations, which is uh, uh, one of the it was it was kind of a the premier Bible college in the United States at one time. And at that time, they had about 30 different schools worldwide. So they asked me to come in as the executive international director, which is a nice title. All it means is you, would just, you just create a relationship with people that are already out there. They got Bible colleges that they've set up, different parts of the world. So it's just a real connection so people don't feel like they're all by themselves. So anyhow, all of those three aspects brought us here. It was a good move for us because New Mexico is a lot smaller state population wise and we were on tv for 19 years we were on all the all the networks abc nbc cbs you know and so on and so forth we had a, a never went on christian tv i didn't like that uh the reason for that is is all, all you have is the same audience so we we came up with an idea of backdrafting you know so if you have a little car and you get behind an 18 wheeler you backdraft yeah. and you you suck off the wind. <laughs> so we would find out at that time Arsenio was Arsenio Hall was the hottest thing on late night TV. So we bought the 30 minutes after him, backdrafted his audience and uh, came in real, almost belligerent at some times because you've, you know, TV is a whole different medium. Yeah. So you can be very, very direct uh, on TV and say a lot of things that you couldn't say in person. So that created a, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of talk. So it worked well for us too. Worked really well. So uh, there, in all those nineteen years, there was never a service where somebody didn't come in and said, "I saw you on TV." Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you always want to go into ministry growing up? No, 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 no. I was raised. I, I was. I had no clue. <laughs> I was clueless. Uh, raised Catholic, and uh, but I was. I wasn't even a good Catholic. So, but it wasn't really until a friend of mine. I was I was I was living in the mountains outside of Albuquerque, just a single guy living with a bunch of guys and horsing around, you know, just uh, really just getting drunk every week. And uh, he invited me to a Baptist church. I never been to a Baptist church in my life. So, Catholic church, you go forty five minutes and it's over with. So he told me, you know, you come about nine thirty. So I thought nine thirty, okay, nine thirty, quarter after. Uh, uh, tan will be finished. And so we went to Sunday school. I had no idea what Sunday school was. <laughs> they gave me a Bible and they, they said to open up to a certain book. I had no idea. I couldn't find it. By the time I found the book that they were reading out of in the Bible, they were already three books ahead of me. So then that finished and I said, can we go home? He said, no, 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 no. Now we go, go to the main service. I said, oh my God, it is horrible. So I sat on the back row. I mean, the back row. And I never saw a preacher sweat. And this guy was sweating. Working up. Uh, he was working up, yelling, and, and then he gave an altar call. I never saw an altar call. You know, every head bowed, every eye closed. And and I can remember looking at him. I put my head up and I looked, and he looked straight at me, so I sat on my hands. I said, no way I'm lifting my hands. And so it aggravated me. And, uh, uh, and and when the service was over, the, the pastor was out the door greeting everybody. I don't know how he got there so fast. <laughs> And so he looked at me, said, are you a Christian? I lied to him, told him I was just so he'd leave me alone. And then I made a decision. I said, I'm going to commit every sin I can think of because it aggravated me so much. So six months after that, I kind of did full circle and I could remember what he said and I gave my life to the Lord. And it was shortly after that, that I just felt there was something in me and it was a journey. You know, it was a journey. 
shortly after that, I met, I met uh, uh, the girl that was going to be my wife. She was from El Paso, and her dad was in the ministry. So that kind of became my gateway and through, through you know. So anyhow, I moved to El Paso for a while, moved back to New Mexico, and we planted a church. Man. Yeah. So, Who'd have thought? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? So one of the things we talked about, we got to just kind of run in on some tangents before we hopped on here, but one of the things that I really appreciate and have enjoyed kind of learning about you is what you mentioned earlier in terms of going out and building and investing in leaders. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you look maybe from the outside of the church culture and a pastor is at a church and they stay at that church unless they go to another church and that's where they are for the rest of their life. And there's not a development outside of kind of their staff. Right, right, right. What led you to want to pour into either other pastors or just other leaders in other industries to help make them better leaders and individuals for the communities and teams they serve? Well, you know, uh, and that's a great question because anybody that, first of all, everybody is a leader in some capacity. You lead somebody. But when you when you begin to organize an event and you bring in pastors, you bring in potential leaders, business leaders, so on and so forth, you've got people that, that are recognizing initially that there's something in them. And if you can if you can provoke that, if you can further that, the influence that you create through them is much greater than the influence you're going to have just simply talking to a congregation on a daily on a weekly basis. And and in all and I, I'm under no illusions and I tell audiences this, I'm under no illusions. Most of the things I'm about to say you'll probably forget. So there's only a few things that resonate. So if you could create tools, you create literature that goes with what you're doing, you could get them a little bit more involved, so on and so forth. That's why I did everything around stories. Stories live and and I've proven it through the years, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I've watched, I've gone back. Sometimes I've gone back to countries where I've been there 20 years. I've had people come up to me and they said, you were here. And they mentioned the time, the date. And I said, what did I talk about? And they could, they could tell me because I wrapped everything in the form of a story because we don't think in words, we think in pictures Yeah. and stories will resonate and they'll speak and they enlarge somebody because they could connect emotionally mentally to a, a, into a story and then they can it changes their narrative and if you can change their narrative you can change their life you can change the direction of their life but to invest into that group builds a much greater platform much greater influence and you feel more fulfilled because you feel like you're actually doing something that'll further them and what's their influence going to be so your influence grows as a result of it so that that really was our our impetus behind it. I love that. And I love what you talk about in story because story is a a big piece of what we talk about in terms of the stories we write and tell by just how we live. In your opinion of all these years sharing stories and using it as a teaching method, what do you believe makes a great story? Is there one to two characteristics? Yeah, Yeah, there definitely is. I've I've even tried to to relate it, Uh, you know, in, 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 preaching terminology, you got homiletics and so on. And so um, I never took a course in it, but I found out what makes a great story by trial and error. And when you listen to somebody tell a story, most people don't know how to tell them. They don't bait. 
They don't draw it out long enough. They don't know when to hit it, when to pull back. It's almost like fishing. If you get a fish on the line, you got to let them out and you got to bring them in. You got to let them out. You got to play with it until you get to that point where you can bring them in. It's the same way with an audience. You got to feel, there's an organic sense to where you feel people. And one thing you want to do on a great story is to come into that story and create intrigue. But when you, as that story's laid out, when you get to the point of the story, that's the most powerful aspect that you want that aspect to live in them. Don't say it real fast. Get to that point and then draw back. Until the audience, the congregation, whoever you're talking to, are asking you for it. They're trying to pull it out of you. And when you know they're trying to pull it out of you, hesitate a little bit longer and then drop it. And it'll explode on the inside of them. But if you say it too quick, it goes right past them. It's like a good movie. A movie will draw you in and, and, and you'll stay with it till the end because you don't know what the end is going to be. So it's the intrigue that keeps you there because you want to know the end. Even if you presuppose what it might be, you want to know how it plays out. Absolutely. Same thing with a story. Did you have a, do you have a defining memory or moment that you remember giving that talk, sharing that story in that way where you're like, that's it. Like, this is how I need to deliver my message. Yeah, I think, I think there was, I think, I think it was the first time I ever went to India. So, and this is back in the early nineties. So I'm invited out there. We're, we're in a city North of Madras called Gunter. And I looked at a map before I went out there and I said, man, it's only 150 miles, you know, can't take that long. I fly into Madras, you know, and we'll just drive up there. It took 17 hours. I mean, India is a madhouse. I mean, it's a madhouse. When they talk about a traffic jam in <laughs> Dallas, it's, you know, it might slow you down 30 or 40 minutes, maybe an hour. This thing was 17 hours ago, 150 miles. God. So anyway, we get there and I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm at a total deficit in this thing. We got 500 uh, pastors there. I'm at a total deficit. Number one, it's a culture that I'm unfamiliar with. It's a language that I have no clue what they're saying. I mean, I'm clueless. So I'm going to work through it. I saw, you know, I'm going to have a translator. So I got, I, I, rec- I recognize I got deficit, deficit, deficit. So what am I going to do to make up for that deficit? I've got to create something that completely overrides my deficit and take my disadvantages and make up all my advantages. And that's when I developed another concept because I do so many things through translators. You know, I've worked up, up, to, up to five at one time. And, and uh, in, uh, in uh, Burkina Faso, Ouagadougou is the capital of Burkina Faso, North Africa. So, but, but now I'm working with one, just, just, which is not hard. So I developed a concept that I could take this translator and I make him an integral part so instead of him, me standing him and him standing to my right or to my left, and I say something, he says something, I say something, he says something, I'm going to bring this guy in and I'm going to play off of him. So I'm going to create a form of entertainment through a story by playing off of him and, and making him a part of what I'm doing. Kind of hard to explain. You almost have to see it. But it became, it, it became a form of entertainment because if you can create a form of entertainment People will, will perk up. They lean forward. They start laughing. 
They start getting engaged because you're creating something here that they are interested in. So if I, and I, and I always tell them, whatever I do to you, you do back to me. So I hit them. Oh, and I say, hit me back. And that'll break the, 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 I mean, it just breaks up a whole audience. They'll start laughing because I slug the guy and then he slugs me back. Now I did that in Russia one time and they, they almost put the brakes on me. <laughs> I thought I beat up their, their one and only. So I slugged this kid, 19 year old kid, real tall, skinny kid. I'm, I'm in Belarus. Uh, shortly after the end of the Cold War. And, I, and we had 400 leaders out there. And I walked out and I told this kid, I said, whatever I do to you, do back to me. And I said, halfway through, I slugged him. And he looked at me and I said, and under, underneath my breath, I said, hit me back. And he hit me and it broke the thing open. They roared with laughter. There was a guy there that had been there, American, been there for eight years. And he said, he said, I saw two things tonight I've never seen in my eight years in this nation. I said, what? He said, I've never seen these people laugh. He said, first time I've ever seen them laugh at anything. They're so stoic, you know. And he said, and they responded. He said, they never do either. Wow. So it's just a technique if I'm with a uh, translator. If I'm not, then I just, you know, you, you, you have to be, uh, 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 you have to ad live and, and get in there and connect. And, you know, I, w- I always tell young people, I said, turn around and know your audience. I mean, there's no reason to teach on how to run a race to win if they're all in their 70s or 80s. I mean, they're finished running. Yeah. Uh, you know, know your audience. Just turn around and look who you're talking to, and it can, it'll can it change what you say. Man, I love that. And I want to ask, in regards to that, on a, a slightly separate note, working with translators, all your travels, that's a lot of getting out. For a lot of people, it's a lot of getting out of your comfort zone. And it sounds like your entire life has been lived getting outside of a comfort zone or pushing the boundaries of what would be defined maybe your comfort zone. Have you always kind of had that to where you're like, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to do this. I'm going to step out of home to do this. Or is it something that once you got into the ministry, you were called and you just said, I'm going. No, I think, I think a part of that's always been in me, um, you know, kind of push the boundaries to, 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 break a law. I don't mean in a wrong way, but I mean, if there's something there, well, why not? If they say we can't, maybe we can. If they say don't, maybe we should. You know, so that attitude, if it's directed properly, it can be healthy. Yeah. I mean, you, can, you can also be, you know, improper too. But I think, I think that's a healthy element. Somebody that just doesn't want to drive between the lines all the time or just just stay, you know, two miles an hour under the speed limit or just do everything proper or, you know, there's always that element that says, well, why not? The sign says we can't. Well, why, why can't we? Who said we can't? Maybe we can. Or somebody said it won't work. Well, who are they? Uh, who died and left them in charge? Maybe we can. Maybe it will work. Maybe there is a way. So I think that whole mental attitude, uh, allows you to take a dare, allows you to take a, you know, a healthy one, not a stupid one, but a healthy one to where you're willing to get out there. And besides that, when you, whenever you, you know, the brain turns on out of its comfort zone up until that time it's called um, physiological memory. They say by the time a person's 30 years old, the brain has taught the body everything it needs to do. So you work on physiological memory. Um, so you don't need to think anymore. 
So most people stop thinking at the age of 30. You stop thinking. The only way to think again is to totally move outside of your comfort zone where you have to think. So I always tell people, I said, put away your phone when you drive. Get lost. Purposely get lost. And I promise you, get lost in the city. Get lost driving. And your brain will turn on. You'll start noticing everything because you're trying to get out of the maze you're in. You've got to get out of things or study things or read things or do things that put you in arenas to where your mind turns itself on. Otherwise, it won't. It goes to sleep. Man. I, you know, I've never actually thought about that in terms of just getting lost or we look at, I always look at comfort zones and doing something that you're afraid of doing just to kind of lean into that and that discomfort. But I love the idea of doing things like that, just getting lost in your own city to force yourself to think through a situation that you just usually run on autopilot or you're looking at your phone or your car GPS and it's just yeah. a straight shot. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what most people do, especially nowadays. We don't even have, you know, physical maps anymore. That's right. <laughs> Push the button, boom. And it's nice, it's convenient, and we all use it. Yeah. But when you move out of it, and all of a sudden, think, well, where am I? I was, I was jogging in Africa one time, and I got lost. I mean, you never know what's out there. Yes. <laughs> and I realized I'm going in circles. I am going in circles. I've seen this same tree about five times <laughs> i finally figured it out i got back my wife said where have you been you've been gone like an hour and a half i said yeah i got lost she said you admitted to it i said yeah oh my gosh there's no roads out here everything looks it's all dirt <laughs> man and so you've got we chat a little bit you've got some more travels coming up you said you're gone what five to six months a year out of dallas yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. where's next on the, uh, the agenda? Uh, next will be Africa. We'll, we'll come into South Africa, and we'll do just a little thing in South Africa, you know, Joburg and so on, because you, you have to fly in there mm -hmm. if you're going to get it. Southern Hemisphere of Africa. And so we'll be there, and then we'll go up to from there to Zambia. Uh, no, actually, we're going to Botswana first. We've done a lot of work in Botswana. And what we're doing in Botswana is Botswana is the highest, the highest HIV positive in the world. Wow. So you got the government stats running at 33% Jeez. of the population It's HIV positive. So we launched about three years ago a grassroots movement for men that manhood and Christ-likeness are synonymous. And we have a workbook that goes with it. And really the, the, end, the end game that we're trying to produce is to, is to get this to the point. We brought it into influential leaders, government leaders, uh, religious leaders, but to get it from them into men to where men start to connect with men, whether it's a coffee in a village, whatever. And one guy that's gone through it will take another guy or two guys and, and hold them accountable and kind of go through this workbook and so on and so forth. The same thing, the exact same thing was done in um, uh, Uganda when that was the highest back in 1990, 91, 92, 93. They were about 33, 35% HIV positive. They mm. called it slim. I was out there. They called it slim. They didn't even know what it was. They thought it was a curse of the witch doctor because you get thinner, 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 yeah. thinner, and then you die. And so they used the same material, same thing. We're just duplicating it. And um, it took about five years to work into the culture to get grassroots. But according to the um, uh, stats now, it's at, down to 6%. Wow. So we're trying to replicate that. And Botswana is easier because it got a smaller population base. And then we'll do the same thing in Zambia. We're going to start in Zambia 
Now, Zambia doesn't have the high numbers, but it, you know, it's connected. It's a, it's a border country. So we'll do the same thing there on a shorter thing. And then, and then, uh, and then we, we got good friends out there. They're Americans. They've been out there 30 years, so on and so forth. Got a big work out there, the biggest NGO in the nation of Botswana. So we'll hang out, hang out with them and probably do a, we'll end up doing a little, you know, some fun stuff. We'll do a game drive over in the Okavanga Delta. Man, how do you find these causes to kind of pour you and your family's lives into to create positive change? Well, I, I think I th- a lot of them just came out of past relationships. For instance, in the nation of um, Papua New Guinea, which is n- north of Australia, you know, it's the last country on earth that practiced tribal cannibalism. It was outlawed in 1965. It doesn't mean you stopped, you, they stopped eating each other. It yeah. just meant it was illegal to eat each other. <laughs> but, so we started working up there back in the 90s with the couple, a husband, what they're Australians that went up there as missionaries. And that when they first went up there, they went to the Eastern Highlands of Papua, very remote, still is. But I mean, back then I can only imagine. They, they never saw clothes up there. Wow. And they, they built a clinic. He was a builder. She was a nurse by trade. Both Australians went up there and spent 37 years, and that there was nothing. There's no medical um, uh, facilities anywhere in that area, and they had the highest infant mortality rate in the world. So you you didn't. Uh, it was not uncommon for a woman to have 20 pregnancies and six living children, God. and you never gave a child a name until they were two to three years of age because you didn't want to create attachment because the chances are they would die. God. So they built this clinic. It turned and it, and it was it's it's not huge, but it's it's had a million people go through it from from the uh, latter '60s until now, and it brought down the infant mortality rate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we finance the we underwrite the operation monthly of that clinic in the Central Highlands or the Eastern Highlands of Papua New Guinea. So it's really you know, I'll, I'll be back up there in October just to see the work and, and, and train some more leaders and so on and so forth. And uh, it's a it's fascinating country, just very diverse, very, very unique country, no interior roads. So that's why it's been so undeveloped, so primitive. And the people are still very, very primitive, uh, and especially if you get way up in the mountains. Man, you've, you've been all over the world. You've been involved in a ton of stuff. When you get to your final days, all these people that have interacted with you, heard you speak anything, what do you want their lasting impression of you to be? What do you want your legacy to be in their mind? I think, I think, I think just um, um, a couple of thoughts. One is, is, is that, uh, that I, I helped infuse in them the attitude of not giving up, to continue to run their race, to keep their faith in Jesus Christ, to continue to live for God and live a good life, a godly life, and a life filled with character. And if, if they could, if I could do that, that'd be fantastic. Man, Dr. Rob, this has been a lot of fun. If people want to learn more about some of the mission work you're doing, follow along to some of your travels, where can they connect with you? Well, our website's the easiest. It's just robcarman.com. You know, uh, just boom, boom, boom. You can speak. Uh, you know, C A R M A N. So they can they can even spell my name wrong because we bought all the wrong domains. So, <laughs> so, but they can also get our weekly thought transformers on there, which are free. So every Monday we come out with what we call a, a thought transformer, and a thought transformer is based on a scripture. 
in Romans chapter 12 and said, you can transform your life by changing the way you think. So I come out there, they're short stories and they have a free audio download if they want to listen to that on that subject. And then if they want to get the whole series, the whole series like 10 bucks, but it comes in their inbox free. So it comes every, so all they do is go robcarman.com, put in their email and bam, um, they get it every Monday. So I've got to ask, because you mentioned in story, you don't like give us 80% of the story in the email and then we have to wait till Friday for the last piece. No, of no, 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 no. We don't do that, Jake. We, don't do that. We, we give you the whole thing. I just bait them with the first paragraph and you click it and you get more. You're in. Oh, Dr. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Jake, thank you for having me. That's it for another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. I I appreciate you as a listener. I appreciate each member of the Compete community, and I'm glad that you tuned in this week, and hopefully you found some value in what we shared and who we brought on and just all the types of content we're out sharing. So if you got feedback, like I said, shoot us a note directly to podcast at competeeveryday.com. Connect with us on social media. Say hi. Tell us you found the podcast. We love connecting with new members of the community. We want to welcome you. Uh, We want to find ways to connect you and equip you with ways that you can be better than yesterday. Have a great week.